Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Everywhere we go, people want to know. Everywhere we go, people want to know who we are and where we come from. So, who are you and where do you come from? My name is Amy Lowry and I'm from Clondalkin. And what was it like growing up in Clondalkin? Um, yeah, it was it was actually good. Like we moved around quite a bit. Right. So we, we would have lived in, I think, we would have lived in one, two, about five different houses in Clondalkin. Yeah. Really? So it was a lot like. And Why? Just because um, my stepdad at the time um, did really well with his business. Right. Um, so every time we moved, we moved to a bigger house. Um, but oh. it was in Clondalkin. I never changed school in Clondalkin. Yeah. I went to the primary school all the way up and I went to secondary school all the way up. We moved then again when I was 16 down to Wicklow, down to British Bay, which I hated because like I was, you know, I was doing my leaving cert and like I was at that awkward age where you have to leave your friends, you're not driving. You're get- Actually, I did my leaving cert like down, from down there, but... My mom used to get up. We used to leave the house at six in the morning. I'd have the duvet on me and I'd be like, you know, the typical teenager, like fuming that I had to get up so early and go up. But the business that my mom and my stepdad were in, she worked for him. So the business was in Clondalkin as well. So we'd go, she'd, we'd get dropped off at school and then she'd go to work and then we'd have to walk down to the job and wait for her to finish work. So it was kind of like... Did you hate leaving? I hated leaving. Yeah, I hated leaving Clondalkin at that time because, you know, all my friends were there and everything, you know, and it was, it was hard, like uprooting again. So yeah, needless to say, I didn't, I stayed a year and then I moved out when I was 17. Oh, did you? Yeah. I was just like, I can't live down here anymore. And I was like, I rang my nanny and my granddad and they were like, yeah, you can come and live with me. So I moved again to Black Rock was there till I was 19. You were um, a real wanderer, I was, weren't you? Oh, it gets, I get, gets more. <laughs> <laughs> At 19 then I left and I rented in Clondalk and then with friends. Yeah. Um, and then after that, then I went to live in Australia when I was 24. Okay. On your own or with pals? I went with one friend, Emma, and we went to Thailand for a month and then we went down the coast and... Then I was there for like three years. Um, I met my husband over there as well. In Australia? In Australia. Yeah, yeah he's actually from Donamede. Yes. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it was mad like going to the all, all the way over to the other side of the world to meet someone that's like 
an hour, not even an hour away from you. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's just the way it worked out. Um, and did you just come home together then or did you just do travel or what did you just do? Um, no, well, I was there for, that was my third year there and it was his first year. <clears throat> and then my mom got sick and I was only seeing Gavin um, six weeks. So, you know, when you're at that stage, of, you don't know what, like whether the relationship's going to work out or like, you know, because at that time I had to go home. Like I was like, I'm definitely going home. I have to help her. Like, you know. What did what happened to her? She got diagnosed with ovarian cancer. Yeah. So, um, and she had, was due to come over to Australia and spend three weeks with me and she had the flights and all booked. And, um. How old was she, Amy? She was 46. <gasps> yeah. Yeah. She was really young. She had me when she was 17, like, so she was a really young mother. So we were kind of like sisters more than anything else, you know? Mm. Um, so yeah. Um, I just, I wasn't sure. Like, and I said to Gavin, like, will you take over my apartment in Australia mm. and mind it for me? <laughs> because I want to come back. Like, obviously mm. I did at this stage, we didn't know what the situation was. I knew my mom was going to have to start chemo and she was due to start six sessions of chemo. Ovarian cancer is obviously really aggressive. So he took over, he left the place he was living and took over my place to pay the rent um, so that I could keep it. And I left like most of my stuff there. And the job that I got at the time, they were really supportive and they were like, your, your seat's still here, you know, um, when you come back. So that was like October, or sorry, September 2012. And then I left then in October. And um, my mom was due to start the treatment, I think three days later. And I kind of wanted to spend a bit of time with her before she started the treatment because I know that you can change on the treatment like you're, and she did like, um, so. In what way change? I don't tell me about Like, that. so you, you, like, she was a bit more like, how do you put it? It's like she was on something like okay. on medic, on meds, like, mm. you know, so it was like, she was a little bit. Like her behavior would be a little bit different in the sense that she might be, well, obviously she was emotional anyway, because of what, what she was up against, but, um, just, you, yeah, you're just like, you're, you're not, you're full in your full senses all the time. So you can, you, you, you definitely, you know, you lose a little bit of yourself type of thing. So <clears throat> I actually got delayed on the way home, um, in Abu Dhabi and, I said to myself, I'm just going to go out and I'm going to go on a trip like while I'm here, even though I'm on my own. And I was really nervous, but I was just like, I'll just do it, like just to do it. And I met another girl from Ireland that was on the same flight as me who had been home a couple of years before me and her mother had like a brain injury and she had passed away. So it was real weird just getting into this Jeep and we were going doing bashing um, over in Abu Dhabi, like, and like I just felt like this is strange like meeting someone that has been through like probably something that I'm going to go through um and then anyway I got home then and she was at the airport bring me back to that moment in in that moment isn't it mad how and I'll be only happy you said this uh, while we're having a cup of tea how small the world is and you were probably supposed to meet her because maybe she was going to calm you down or it's mad like I booked a trip I went up had a nap came down jumped into this Jeep literally with the driver and then she was sitting beside me and her name was Elaine actually. And she, I'm Tony And I always remember like, because it was just such a, it was like maybe she was sent to me 
to show me that you can you can get on with life or you can do it like you know um, I, it was just mad that when I look back at the situation as to how she, who was sitting beside me you know mm. in all of this um, so yeah I do believe that people are sent to you and different situations are sent your way to for whatever reason like I do get mm. that like you know quite kind of spiritual that way um, but um, yeah then my mom obviously came to the airport to collect me and she always stood on the left hand side of the when you know when you're walking through the left hand side and she was there and I remember just seeing her and she just looked really ill and I had only been home in the April and she put on this like a 27th birthday for me it was like a 30 by the mm. way but she put on this big birthday in, the, in a pub and had a cake and a DJ and everything like and it was lovely like but she was going, like, she was feeling like quite a lot of pain in her stomach at that time. And I used to say to her, would you go to the doctor? Like, do you know? And she was like one of those women that like, if she was in pain, she'd just suffer and she just let it go. Like her pain threshold was really, really high. Mm-hmm. Um, so <clears throat> obviously by the time she went, actually, they misdiagnosed her originally with Crohn's disease and they were going to start her on medication for, the, for Crohn's. But she had another test done in her stomach and it was it showed up. It's like, it's called peritoneal cancer. It's in the lining of the stomach. Okay. So that's what was, it was like, that was a secondary, um, source of the cancer. So that's what actually, so then they, they delved further and they realized that it was in the ovaries as well. It was in the, it was, it's hidden in the back. Um, so anyway, I got to see her and I got to spend like, I think two days with her before she had her started her treatment. Um, and you have to get your blood, she had to get her blood stone first to make sure that they were, she had the right white cell counts, I think at the time and everything was good to go. But it was a real scary journey. Um, my mom's a real positive person, was a real positive person. Um, and I just didn't see a fight in her from the start. And it was really difficult for me to see no fight in this woman that was like the light of the room. Um, Everybody loved her. She just had a real um, magnetic like personality and she had like a real way of making you feel like you were her best friend. And like she could have had 12, 20 best friends, but you were her best friend. When you were with her, you were her best friend and you were, you felt so special. And that's just, it was a gift that she had that not many people have, but she had it like, so to see somebody that was so full of life and young and helped so many people um, she did a lot of work with uh, uh, people that had addictions. Um, she got into Trinity College at the age of 40 um, when she didn't even have a leave insert. Um, and she studied addiction and she helped so many people. Like, And that was just her call. And like, she was just like kind of like a, an earth kind of angel type of a person, you know? Um, so, yeah, like, so just to see her at the very beginning of the journey with no hope or no like we're going to get through this was really disheartening and um it kind of like I kind of felt real vulnerable then and I'm the only girl in the family like in like with my mom and I'm obviously the eldest as well and uh I like obviously it was a I felt it was my duty to take care of her and so that's what I did. Um, I had no idea what the journey was going to be like. 
it was very emotional. Um, and it was very, it was like <clears throat> the only way to describe it kind of is like, a, like a live a nightmare when the person that you love your mother is suffering and there's nothing that you can do like to, to, to save her or to stop her, like, or to take it away. You know, it's very, very, like it's emotional. It's, it's raw. It hurts. It, it's just, yeah, it takes over. Like, and um, so she started the, the treatment anyway, and that was really difficult. She kept, she got really sick from that. Then obviously comes with the hair and all, um, the shave her head. She actually looked beautiful with a shaved head. <laughs> she just had a really lovely face. Um, she, she held herself very well. I mean, she put her makeup on every day and she got dressed every day for most of the days. Um, and she wanted, she, she was a person that wanted people around her all the time. So we had three different timing of visitors a day, three different people, which was heavy <laughs> because mm. I'm the type of person that if I was emotional, like I need a bit of time to retreat and to, you know, just get me head around it. So you're meeting people, three different types of visitors a day. It was tough. Um, you know, trying to like, I mean, I used to just say, look, just make your own tea at this stage, mm. but lots of our friends are amazing. Um, she had a really good, uh, network of friends and they're still amazing. Some of them are really good to me and my brothers, like they will host a birthday meal for me on my birthday at, the, at one of their house and the same for my brother. Um, and they're just very caring and we go, we would have traditions with them all from when my mom was here. So we kind of, we try and keep them and we make new ones. So another one of our friends, um, Aoife is really good to me as well. Um, like I would have been the type, I would have had my mom on speed dial <laughs> and, and that went wrong or anything that I was struggling with. Like she's the first person I would call. So that is a huge loss. Like that, that just that part, like, and you don't want to be ringing anyone else that amount of times or for whatever reasons because everybody has their own life but that part I found extremely difficult it was that kind of connection that loss but for the most part there is some really good people that she had in her life that are still in her life so that's really special um but just going back to the treatment then she did the treatment every she had four she could only manage four sessions of the chemo out of six because she was too sick and she was just, the cancer was just grown. And in the middle of all of that, then her bell was getting blocked and she had to get a stoma bag. Mm-hmm. And she was very, so upset over that because it was just another added thing that was happening to her that she couldn't control. And then we had to learn how to, you know, look after that part as well. Um, and yeah, it was sad. Like she cried every day for eight weeks at one stage. Like, and I, I just found that horrific. Like it was just so upsetting. Like she kept saying like, I don't want to leave you. And her whole life was, was our kids. Like, and you know, it was just sad, like very, very sad. Um, so I just said like, I need to go to counselling. Like, and I actually like went to counselling while she was still alive because I was finding it really hard. It was overwhelming. And like she, it was just painful. Like it was painful for all of us. And the dynamic, I don't know, but like the dynamic in a, in a family that has cancer, 
is, is mad because everybody is so sensitive and everybody's triggered. And somebody could come in one day, like a, a visitor could come in one day and say, Jesus, it's freezing in here. But my Mac would have said to me, oh, I'm fucking too hot. And then you're like, like, is she, is she insinuating something? Mm. Like, you know, you get real sensitive around different things. Um, and I felt like that that was kind of, I wasn't, I was overwhelmed by, by other people as well. And like, you don't know how I feel, mm. you know, and, um, but look, that's kind of where it was at. And I remember my mom going to a hospice, like just for a meeting, like, but she said to the lady, like, oh, Amy wouldn't want me in a hospice. But not that I wouldn't want her in a hospice. I geez, I want her to be where she wants, where she wanted to be. But I don't know. At the time, I didn't feel like, how am I going to, how can I do this mm. on my own? Um, we've no, we had no, sorry, we had no, um, like my dad wasn't there. Um, my dad wa- is, wasn't with my mom either at that time. So there was no male figure or anything in the house to sort of to help out or to alleviate or to relieve stress. It was, I just felt like that a lot of it was on, on me and I was her carer and I was her, you know, her only mm. as such in, in that, in that sense. So I went, I started counseling while she was alive because I was actually grieving her while she was alive because I knew she was going to be gone. Um, and she said she didn't want any more treatment after four rounds. And then in the January, like, yeah, because it was the January then, 2013, they said she was terminal. Um, Were you angry with her for not getting any more rounds? No, I wasn't angry with her, but I remember thinking like, would you not try like, you know, the the CBD oil and all the different things and all. She was very much, for someone that was so positive, she was very much someone that wouldn't, Agreed. Like she just, she, she said no to anything like that. Like she just was just like, no, like I don't want to like, so it was a bit, I was t- probably a little bit taken aback, but I wasn't angry with her, but we did have like, um, there would have been a bit of like, there was a few arguments, um, and it was right to, like they were right to come to the surface. Like, um, I think because she was dying, people were afraid of her, but like, and probably everybody was saying yes to her and all, but somebody had to say no to her at some stages, like just for different things. And it was me <laughs> that had to do that. It was just boundaries, like, you know, um, but that was, that was fine. Like, and she actually said to me as well one day, like, it was really sad. Like she said to me, like, if I've hurt you in any way, um, Will you tell me what, what, you know, I, I, I want to, I want to try and solve it before I die because I don't want, I, I want to make amends before I die. She said, and I was like, ma'am, Jesus, no, like, I don't want to talk about anything like that has gone on or anything that's happened because you're dying and it's not the right thing to do for me, but I really appreciate it. And, you know, but that's the type of person she was. She wanted to make amends and, you know, just make sure that I was going to be all right. Um, but in, in these situations, like, as I said, she like emotions are high, the dynamic changes, like everybody's life is falling apart. Like me, me and my brother's lives were just like crumbling. She was our glue, like everything. She was our everything, did everything for us. So it was, yeah, it was, it was hard, like, you know. 
So, um, you're very wise, though, for a 27 year old going through all that, leaving your life and then making those decisions. Like, yeah, I don't know how people have strength. And when I speak to other people and they they go through grief or they go through cancer with someone, I don't know how. I honestly don't know how or where you get the strength from. Yeah, it's um, it's very, it's like, and I'm saying, like, it's it's like a it's painful when you're going through it. Like you feel, you feel all the feelings of, of, you know, when you're, it's like a heartbreak, but like double the heart, it's a double heartbreak of pain and anguish. I suppose for me, that's what grief feels like when it's at the, at a heavy stage at the, quite at the beginning or if somebody's here and they're dying, that's how I would try and describe it. Like, you know, and that's why I felt like, you know, going to counseling at the time, I was away from everybody. I was able to talk about how I felt to someone that didn't know me and it was easier. It wasn't fa- a family member. It was just, it was, I could say what I wanted mm. and I could feel okay about that too. And I think that's important, especially with, you know, people not feeling guilty if they feel upset or hurt or angry, you know, when they when they have a relationship with someone that's dying as well. It's very important that they have, they're human and everybody has the right to feel their feelings, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think that's what I took from that. Um, but, um, but Gavin or my husband now, um, um, he came for a holiday. I came home in the October and he came for a holiday in December and we went away for a week to Barcelona. And my mom had a chat with him on his own. And, he didn't tell me what she said to him until she passed away. But she told him to go. He had like, his visa was up in March in Australia. And she told him to go back to Australia. Right. And that like, basically, like, obviously he had a job and whatever. Like there was obviously nothing for him here um, to go back to Australia and come back obviously in March. And he had told, and he had said to her like, um, she had said to him, like, I know you're going to marry her, like, you know, and all of that, like, um, but I kept thinking to myself, why is he going back? Like, I really want him to stay. Mm. Like, I'm, I need, I feel, felt like I needed him mm. um, because I was in so much, like, emotional turmoil. And I kept saying, I can't, but it was at the, you know, that new stage of a relationship. Mm. So you don't want to come across like you're like a psycho, like, or you're like, mm. you know, so I kind of just went with it. And I remember saying to him, like, God, like, I just wanted to say to you, would you just please stay? Like, but I couldn't. Um, and I was like, he told me afterwards, I've, I think if it was any other fella, they probably would have told me mm. out of their own kind of, say, I don't know. Selfishness. selfishness. But he didn't. And I remember saying, oh, I, I kill her. I kill her for saying that to you. Mm. But no, she wanted the time with me on her own mm. and she needed it. And he came back um, in the March and I remember getting upset and she was like, you're going to leave me. And I was like, I'm not going to leave you. Like, you know, she really heavily relied on me. Like, and I was like, I'm not going to leave you. Like, just it's relax. Like, um, and um, that was kind of a little bit. That's when I started to realize, oh my God, like she really like relies so heavy on me. You know, and I felt and I could feel it like. So that was in the March and then 
Go back to the January for me. In the January, she was diagnosed as terminal, was she? Yeah. So they told her that, like, she was terminal and that, um, that they could offer her more treatments if she wanted, but that it might not work. Um, it wasn't working, the treatment that she was on. They could offer another type of treatment, but she said no. She just said, no, I don't want it. I think she knew. Like, what's the point? She's so sick on it that she just couldn't, like, she just didn't want it anymore. Like, she was just like, I can't do it anymore. And we were all sitting there and then she started talking about what she wanted for her funeral. And it was real strange, like, to go through all the details of what she wanted. Like, she wanted to get cremated and she wanted to get, go into it. There's these, um, there's a graveyard in Greystones and they, you can actually bury your ashes okay. and you can get your name put on a plaque on the wall and it overlooks the sea. She loved the sea. So she actually went to visit this graveyard to see what she wanted and where she wanted people to go and visit when she was gone. So to have all of that kind of in place. and Did you go with her? I didn't go to the graveyard with her now. I think maybe her sister might have went with her. I would, I don't think it would be something that I'd want to do, but about three weeks before she died, um, myself and my brother Craig, we went up to Vincent's hospital because we were really nervous. We knew she was dying, but we just didn't know when, where, like what we just, you know, when you're waiting Mm. and we went up to Vincent's to speak to her consultant to find out like what stage she was at where like, you know, we were a bit lost. How old was Craig? Craig was... 24 at the time and then my other younger brother was 21 Um, but we went up to Vincent's and myself and Craig went in and like we just said like what stage is she at like where whereabouts is like what's happening because we don't know and he said guys I'm going to say two weeks well we nearly fell off the chair because we were not expecting him to tell us that and he said, listen, he said, if she goes, if she stays any longer, it won't be, it'll be unfair for her. And if she stayed three weeks, we went back. She knew we were going up there. I mean, we went back to the house. She said, and how did she just get on? And we said, oh yeah, no, it was grand. We just asked loads of questions. Like, And do you think she knew that that was her timeline? And I hate to say timeline. She definitely knew that it was drawn near because the patch that she was on, they up the, they kept up on her patch like it's a pain patch like mm. so you're slowly losing her mm. you know when, and and you're not getting as much over then when she's on her on this high dose of medication so you're she's slipping away slowly as such um and in the home Amy who was in the home while this is happening so there was me and my younger brother Eamon that was it <gasps> yeah. My brother Craig was living um, on the Navin Road at the time, but he was working as well full time. So on his days off, he was coming down and yeah, it was literally just me and my brother. And I obviously wasn't working because I couldn't work. Yeah. So we were just kind of living in this nightmare, like every day for nine months. It was nine months. Um, We got out a few times where... um, she actually was like, God love her. Like she tried to do something with us 
all before she died and she went to Manchester with my brother Eamon for the football match in a wheelchair. Like she was like, I mean, she was on death's door when she did this. Like if you've seen photographs, she was looked absolutely dreadful at this stage and she still went over there. And then with me, we went to see Billy Elliot for a night and it was random because I put up, I think at the time I was on Facebook and this girl that I used to live in an estate that I lived in when we first moved to Clondalk and hadn't seen her in about 20 years. And she said, why don't you stay with me? I live in, I can't remember where she lived in England, but I live in so and so and If you get the, the dart or the train, I was going to say the dart, mm-hmm. we'll meet you at the thing. So I said, what do you think? Because my mom knew her, like she would have been my best friend as a kid. Like, yeah. And I said, will we go over to her um, and stay with her? Like, it'd be nice to see her, someone that we know and we might feel safer mm-hmm. because you're so ill. Mm-hmm. So we said, yeah, so we met, we went and met, met an old childhood friend, Katrina, and she met us and obviously my mom had the, ba- the stoma bag. So it was, mm. it was a bit difficult. And then like that burst when we got there and had to try and go into boots and then she was crying and it was just, it was really emotional. Like we got on the, we got on the wrong train then on the way to the airport and it was snowing. And the two of us just cried. Like it was, it was very, very heavy. Like the most heaviest like time where I had, we knew she was dying. We knew there wasn't much time left. That was like the April and she died in the May. So, but she, she fought for us. Like she, she went out of her way to make something happen for us before she passed. You know, that, that's the type of person she was. Um, she fell asleep loads of times in the, in the, in the Billy Elliot, but it didn't matter because she was just, so nice that she was there and she made it there mm-hmm. like a month before she died like that was her she just wouldn't let you down like um so that's like kind of where it's at like um then the week obviously that she died um it was a monday um and i had come down the stairs and she, i could hear her call me but her voice was gone real shallow mm-hmm. and the I went into her and I kind of got a sense, you know, when you just get a sense like that, maybe today is the day, like, cause you're waiting every day and you don't know when you've never been through this before and you've no manual, you really don't know what's going on. So anyway, I, I came down to her and I got, I rang her friend and I put her on to her and, um, she just told me that she loved me like, and the palliative care had come in. And she changed the pump and I was near close to three o'clock and she was like, she's going to go soon. Like she's going to go really soon. So I think you all should come in. And you know the way people tell you, like whisper in their ear and tell them to go. Like, so we were, me, Craig and Eamon were like around her bed and we started singing this song to her. It was a song that we used to sing as kids in the car with her because we were, this is like, she used to always let us. She'd put on the music and she'd let us all blare it out and scream her hearts out. She was a real cool mother. Like mm-hmm. she was a young mother, so she was hip mm-hmm. and she just let you be who you want to be. Mm-hmm. And we started singing this song and it's from the Kelly family. And I don't know if you've ever heard of them. They're, they're an American band. They're like real hippie, long haired and all. But it's called um, Sometimes I Wish I Were an Angel. And it's a real, it's a sad song, but we we all loved it like grown up and we all used to sing it and so we just started singing that to her and you know then we were holding her and we were saying we look after each other man and all and like you know we'll be fine don't be worrying and all and so there was a few people around us out kind of side of the room because we had a her bed downstairs and we had a downstairs toilet which we were really lucky 
and her friend, her, one of her friends came in and my mom had a, had another friend called Trish. She was a, a nun, but she was a Spanish nun. And she left this book when she was visiting her. It was called, like, it was a prayer for the dying. And so her friend came and, you know, opened up the book. And literally it was like, bless your eyes, bless your arms, bless all your parts of your body. And it was a little kind of a script to it. And on the, I'm not joking you, like, this was mad. Like, on the last word of the prayer, she took her last breath. Like, it was just so surreal and calm. And me and my brother started laughing. Like we looked at each other and we just started laughing. And I said to him, Jesus, I was saying in my head, like people are going to think we're fucking mad, but it was like a release. Um, and it was like a nervous laugh because we just didn't know what, like what to do. And we were just like, oh my God, like this is actually after happening, do you know? So that happened. And then she stayed in the house for the night. I never went back into her that, in, into her. Did you know? No, I didn't want to. I... I just felt like that, that when I left the room that day, that that was it. She was laid out on my nanny's den up in Sally Noggin. Um, and I did see her there, but I never went back into her that night. And I, like, I don't regret it. I didn't, I feel like I, I didn't, I just, I couldn't face, face it. If you know what I mean? Like mm. I, I was very numb as well. You go through so many different emotions, like you're, you're kind of closed off as well at some stages. So I was kind of in that numbing stage and I was just shocked. I think I was just more shocked that she was after she died. Like I never, mm. not that I say I never, I did witness somebody other than my mother die, but not like that way, you know, mm. that was that really. Um, and did you feel that in, after, like there was a relief, there was, you know, that she'd gone because she was so sick. Yeah. Like I remember when, you know, when you hear, you know, oh, like they're out of pain, they're out of this. And I remember thinking, and people used to say that I never really understood it. Mm-hmm. And I used to think like, I'd say people, some people hate when people say that to people mm-hmm. because it's like, well, they're not here. I don't care about that. They're just not here. And I remember my brother, my younger brother saying like, I don't care. I wish if I could keep her like that, I would And I say you can't, mm-hmm. you know, and that's the difference. Like she is out, they are out of pain. They're out of the suffering that they have to, they had to endure, which mm. it's like a death sentence, a slow death sentence that you like, it must be like, it's awful frightening for someone to know that they're going to die and have to leave people. Like you must be like, no matter what you got, you probably go through, you go through different stages, denial, um, anger, um, acceptance like you, you obviously go through certain stages in your own mind but I do understand why people say now they're out of pain and I get it mm. because it is important that they're not suffering anymore but it is hard when, when people say that to people that have just lost somebody as well like because it's a sensitive kind of a oh, yeah. thing to say like and you know and no one knows what to say mm. <laughs> so they just say what they think is the right thing to say and that's all right as well you know like talking to you here like the lump in my throat at 46 years of age I'm 41 and to think that all that's been taken away from her but also you guys being so young yeah and dealing with that yeah yeah it was it was difficult at the time and my mum was renting a house at the time um so 
when she died, then we had to look like we were like, oh, we need to go and find somewhere to live. Like, because we weren't planning on staying there. Um, obviously Craig lived in Navin Road. He had his own place with me and my younger brother then. We weren't going to live together, but we needed to find somewhere fast. Um, because like at that stage I had decided I'm not going back to Australia. I don't want to go back. I'm in too much pain. Like the thoughts of losing my mother and my best friend and then having to go all the way over the other side of the world. Like I think that would have been even more grief. Mm-hmm. Like I don't, I think my grief, not to say you don't have timelines on grief because everybody's different, but I would have probably went into a, a real into a deeper, maybe into a real deep depression if I had went back to Sydney because Sydney is, a, they call Sydney the lonely hearts and you can feel very lonely in Sydney even though you have your friends around you. It's just, it's just something about it. Really? Yeah. It's just a strange thing that you can, that you feel when you're there. Um, now you kind of, obviously, I mean, I had a great time and everything, but there is times where you actually feel quite lonely. It's mad. It's such a strange thing. But I left all my stuff there and I never went back. And I, I, like, I wish I could have went back to closure, for closure. Um, that still, that part still affects me. It bothers me that I never got back, got to go back to, to close everything up and bring stuff home. And then like, but I stayed at home for two years and then I went to Canada because I kind of felt a little bit shortchanged because I was after building my life up there for three years and I had like, I had just gotten this really amazing job in an engineering company and like, like life was starting to get good. And then it was all gone. And I was like, I need to go away and I need to build, I need to, I need to feel that I can do it again somewhere else just for my own. And then we needed to save for our wedding and house. So we went to Canada and we picked Calgary. Calgary. So did Gavin come home then? Yeah. Gavin, Gavin stayed in the March then. Um, and he never went back and I was only delighted that he didn't go back because I needed him so much then and it was mad like most of our relationship was like at the start of our relationship it was long distance but and Jesus if it was anyone else they probably would have ran mm. but he didn't you know um, and it, I didn't really know right. why so it was mad because I actually didn't really know him but I was trusting in this person that I had met and that you know and I remember when he was in my house, when he was home for that week, or no, when he came home actually in the March, I didn't really notice this, but my ma loved when somebody did a job for her. Right. She just loved it. And Gavin is the type of person that you don't even have to ask him to do anything. He's very domesticated. He, he, look, he does so much for me and did since the day I met him. He's just that way inclined. And he just one day went out to the back garden and opened the shed and found the lawnmower and started cutting the grass without anybody asking him. He used to do Hoover in the house and he used to light the fire. And I, my mom, I remember her going, like she'd give you loads of praise when he did that for her. Like that's why she had everyone doing things for her because she was great at giving the praise. But I remember thinking like, he hasn't even, no one's asked him to do that. And that was the first time I started to notice like what kind of a person he actually was, you know, that he was a doer, you know, and that I really liked that about him because he showed compassion and care in a different way. And he was the only new person that my mom had to meet. Mm-hmm. And she actually really loved him and liked him. And, you know, I was delighted because he was someone that she liked, you know, and she just wanted me to be happy anyway. Um, and 
yeah so that's when I started to kind of go he's actually really good like I knew by him that he was Mm. a good person just by the way he got in and did things without even asking and yeah it was just it it was that's the start of how I got to know him I suppose (laughs) you know um so he was there when your man passed he was there to support you with all that yeah and then how long was it after that you just made a decision then to so we said we'd stay for two years um in Ireland and um we saved money and the visas for Canada came about and it was like a lottery to get them so you have to set up like a, an account um on the Canadian website and this they sent they release a certain number of tickets and on the first round, Gavin got his and I didn't get a chance to get mine because I was working late. So I didn't get the chance. So literally the second round was us sitting in an internet cafe, like with the the, the click of the mouse, everything filled out, ready to click as soon as they went live. Yeah. So it was really exciting, but like, it was like, it determined like our future in a way, because it was like, if I don't get this, then we can't go like, mm-hmm. or else you're going on your own. Mm-hmm. But um, no, so we, I got it and it was amazing. And we picked Calgary. It's, it's not a place that many would pick in a way. We could have went to Toronto or Vancouver. Well, Calgary is closer to the Rocky Mountains um, Lake Louise, Banff, all that, which was, it, it, yeah, it's amazing. So beautiful. It's like a postcard. Um, but you can save money there. Right. Because it's cheaper to live there than it would have been. And to get a place you need to have a job which we didn't at the time we went over there with no jobs we left our jobs everybody thought we were mad and people say have you got a job no but I knew inside of me that I could make it because I did it before Mm -hmm. but I don't get me wrong I was nervous I was so nervous that I was going I I had done this but I thought no let's like start off at the bottom and work your way like whatever you have to do and we went to visit this apartment and Gavin said that he had a job and he was starting it in two weeks to this guy called John Downey. I never forget his name. It was actually, he's Canadian Irish. But he said, yeah, I'm starting a job in two weeks. And it was like he manifested the job because he did start a job in two weeks. So he started off ahead of me and then I got a job and then it was like just a part-time job. And then I got a full-time job in a water company over there. And I stayed there for two years and I met like, you know, so many different nationalities who I'm still friends with. Like, um, my boss was Indian. My other friend was Colombian, Carolina. And then like, I just had like so many different types of nationality as friends and we all got on great and still talk to them today. Um, and they said to me, like, if you're ever coming back, there's always a job there for you and all, you know, so they were lovely. They were a real, it was like, a, like another family, I suppose. Um, it was very emotional even because I'd built up like a real good relationship with my boss, Gloria, and she was a real, like a mother figure. She was an Indian mother figure and there was just a special bond I had with her and I was very emotional leaving her because I knew that that was going to be gone. So that was tough, like leaving there, but I knew that we were going home to get married and, you know, life was going to be good and we were going to give it a chance then in Ireland. Like, so that was, uh. Yeah, that was kind of the Canada story. And then, Amy, the reason I reached out to you for the podcast was because of your situation. I didn't know that side of your life and what had happened. But the reason why 
I asked you to sit down with me was because of your personal situation. Yeah. So you got married to Gavin and then how long after and what happened? So we got married in 2017. Um, throughout 2019, like I looked at my hand and I had these lumps on my hand. Um, they were, they were small enough. I can't, I'm trying to remember back to when I first started to see them and I can't really gauge that, you know, when something is on you, like a, a mole or something or something is after popping onto your skin and it starts to grow and you're not really sure how it got there or when it got there. So at the end of 2019, I started to wake up in the middle of the night crying um, and in so much pain with these lumps on my hand. And my husband, Gavin, used to say, that's from texting. <laughs> so I had no mm. sympathy. And in fairness, I was uh, a mad texter. Like I would be texting night going 90. It was real fast at texting. Mm. And my tummy used to cross over constantly and I'd be flying it like. Mm. So I thought, well, maybe I am, but I'm not changing because it was me right dominant hand. So I wasn't getting sympathy from him and I was still flat out texting. So I was just kind of accepting that this was my issue and I was after creating this lump on my hands. Um, but anyway, I had this dream that my, um, I went into work anyway and the girls in work used to say, will you just go to the doctor? Please go to the doctor. Like, you know, just get them to check it for you. So I said to them, I would. And the, a few days before that, I had this dream that th- this nurse said to me, get up there on the bed. And uh, she said, you're next. And she had like a, a chainsaw and she was going to chain, she was going to cut my arm off. So I went into work and I was like, girl, I just won't believe this. Like I'm after having this fucking nightmare like that. Sorry, of course. Okay. Um, after having this nightmare that, um, that they were going to cut my arm off and everything like, and uh, I said, it was so scary. Like it was so real. So I booked in with my doctor and my doctor is in Clondalkin, even though I don't live in Clondalkin. <laughs> and I hadn't been to him in about eight years because I'd been away and everything like that. So he was real surprised to see me. And, you know, anyway, I said, look, I have these lumps on my hand. And he said to me, they could be, there could be nothing sinister in them. They could be fine. He said, I suggest you go private to get them tested for an, an ultrasound. And if they need to, then you might need an MRI, go private. And he said, then I'll put you public. If they don't know what it, what it is, you'll get seen to really fast on the public. Probably shouldn't be saying this, but sure, look, that's a tip of anybody. So I went to James's, got the ultrasound done. And the guy who did the ultrasound was like, it doesn't seem like it's cancer. Um, it just seems like it's, you know, malignant. Is it malignant? 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 Benign, malignant. Benign? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. So he said, um, he said, yeah, he said, but because it's under the tendon and sheet, which is like your muscle, I'm going to need to get an MRI. So it was around December then. And I said, ah, I'll get the, the MRI done in January. It's 300 euro and I'll just get Christmas out of the way because I didn't have any health insurance. So I waited anyway and I went over to Clane Hospital and I had the MRI done and you have to lie flat out like Superwoman and you have to put your hand in this box and you're not allowed to move for 20 minutes and the pain of it was excruciating because it was squashing the lumps that were on my hand. Now that lumps were, there was two of them at this stage and they were really, really like, they were really hard. How big were they? Um, 
how would you say, like, what would I, could I describe them as? Ha- I suppose half the size of a mandarin. So half the, ma- if, you, if you cut a mandarin in half and you popped it on your. This is on the palm the of your palm hand. of your hand at the very uh, end where it connects to your wrist. Wow. Yeah. So there's two big lumps there. And I got a call um, a few days later from the private, um, from or not private, um, for public um, to come in and have a look to speak to the plastic surgeon. And she said, oh, I went in anyway, and she said to me, um, oh, look, she said, yeah, I'll be able to peel them off. She said, but she said, if, if um, they might have damaged a nerve and if they've damaged a nerve, you'll have to take one out of your leg. And I was like, that's, she said, that's worst case scenario now. And I said, yeah, okay, that's fine. Because we'll have you in next week. I was like, this is great. Like nine days or something it was turning around for a public. So I had booked, I was going to Liverpool on the Saturday and the operation was on, on, the operation was on the Friday. Was it? Yeah. And I I was thinking on, I'm after getting that date. So I probably won't go to Liverpool because I'm going to, I'm after getting that Mm. date. And about three days later, she rang me and she said, I'm really, really sorry. She said, I've spoken to another consultant. Your results from your MRI have come back. And she said, we need to get a biopsy done on the lumps that are on your hand because like he's looking at the report and he just wants to be sure. She wouldn't tell me anything. Mm-hmm. So I was like, right. She said, come in as normal and have the biopsy done. You'll have it under anesthetic and then you can go home. So I thought, right, I'm going to. I'll have the biopsy and I'm still going to go to Liverpool mm. because like, what's the point in not missing it? It's not the operation. It's just a biopsy. Mm. So I went in um, I had the biopsy done, felt all right. Went to Liverpool the next day, YOLO. <laughs> <laughs> um, I went back to the hospital. I got home then on the Monday and I was hung over. And on the Tuesday I was due into the, to meet Marlies, um, the consultant and my brother, Craig's husband is a doctor. He's a GP, Joe. And he told Craig to go to the appointment. Which? With me, with Gav and himself. Now, I didn't know that Joe was going to come, but Joe came, but he stayed out in the waiting area. But when I seen him, I thought, something wrong. So I went in and Marlies just said to me, Amy, it's not good. She said, you have cancer. And I said, what? And she was like, yeah, you have cancer. And she's like, we don't even know if it's a sarcoma or a melanoma. So the biopsy that we did, we're going to have to send it over, back over to the UK for further testing to find out what type of cancer it is. And I remember saying, which one is the worst? And she said, both of them. And I, all I thought about was I'm going to die because my mad died. I never got to tell you my dad died as well my best friend Richie died of cancer like so there was a, a lot of people that were close to me that died of cancer um so I just thought I'm gonna die and it was the most sinking feeling I've ever had and I remember Gavin's nose started bleeding he was shocked because He's actually been telling me that it was from texting. Mm-hmm. And then he's just like, what? Like his nose started bleeding. Craig was just like, and I just, I just kept remember thinking, oh, we're back to this, this, this again. Back to our family again. And like, oh my God, like I'm going to die. And I felt really sad for Craig, my brother, because 
I didn't want him to have to go through or I even have to go through this ordeal again. Um, so she said, I'm going to get you back in tomorrow for an MRI or for the, not the MRI, the, the CT scan over the full body. to Make sure it hasn't spread anywhere else. And it, we won't have the results for the MRI till the week after. So I was like, right. So I rang my job, told my job. Um, everybody was just shocked. We're all just shocked. Couldn't believe it. Like, um, went home that night because I just I was like, I just need to go home to my own house. Um, we went for something to eat after. Well, we tried to go for something to eat after James's and I was just like, I'll just have a bit of ice cream or something because I just couldn't, I couldn't eat. I was shocked. I was like, oh my God, I'm going to die. That's all I thought. I was just, that's it. Like I'm on, I don't know. So we went home anyway and Gavin started making these posters and they were, ju- they were just called, uh, well, he just had like positive and localized. And that was our like manifestation. Let's hope it's localized. If it's localized, we can deal with it because it's in one place. It's not anywhere else. So let's try and keep positive and it's localized. So the... He's very special, isn't he? Yeah, he really is. He's so good, like, and, um, like he always has like a plan to help, to get it, get through something, you know, he's just that kind of person. And we were just like, we'll get through it, we'll get through it and all, and, you know, like just the two of us. And, um, and then we, we were obviously just waiting then and, I got a phone call one day, I think it was a week later and it was Marlise and she said, I have your results. Do you want to come in or will I give them to you over the phone? And I said, no, just give them to me over the phone. Like, even though I probably wouldn't understand half what she was saying. Mm. Um, and she said, so the cancer is, is, is called clear cell sarcoma and it's a very rare cancer. It's a 1% of cancers. So like, it's so rare. And I just said to her, but it's localized. You know, I was so dis- excited and delighted. And she said, yeah, it's localized. But she wasn't giving me anything. So I kind of felt from her, like, even though it was localized, it still wasn't good. But I didn't, I, I, I wasn't tapping into it because I wasn't allowing myself to tap into it. But I knew I could feel something. So I was ringing everyone. It's localized. It's great. And everybody was just like, relief. Mm. Like everybody. It was like. I didn't have cancer anymore. Mm, yeah. <laughs> That's exactly what it was like. Yeah. It was like it didn't exist anymore. It's local. I should be grand. Stacy said the exact same. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. 
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Because her nanny died of cancer. And Stacy said the exact same thing that when they were told it hadn't spread. Yeah. She, everyone was like, oh, so you don't have cancer anymore? Yeah. She's like, no, I still have cancer. Yeah. It just and, hasn't spread. Yeah. And it's mad because it's like people take the foot off and you're just like, I still have cancer. Like I still have it. Um, but yeah, so that, that's kind of what happened then. Um, so I was kind of like telling everybody delighted with life. But I had gotten like, a, what's it, somebody rang me. Oh yeah, I got a letter in the post that Marlies was looking for a second opinion from a, this other doctor, an orthopedic guy from Kappa. So it was Dr. Alan Malloy and it was like, just for a difference of opinion. So I was like, right, well I'm due into war, I think the following Monday to, for, for the whole team. They're all after having another discussion. But he wanted to see me on the Thursday. So they were going to try and cancel that. And I was like, no, but sure, I'll go to him first, find out what he says, and then I'll go on the Monday. Mm. So myself and Gavin drove over to Kappa. And at this stage, COVID was really hitting. Mm. And it was, um, it was only one person allowed in the hospital. So this was like in Kappa. So I said, Gav, you wait in the car and I'll run in. And I wait. I was waiting on the, on the outside, and his secretary was called. I her name is Mary Cavan, and she's a lovely woman, right? She, I knew by talking to her on the phone, and she just kind of came out and she came straight up to my face, and she goes, "Are you Amy?" <laughs> and I goes, "Are you Mary?" <laughs> and she said, "How do you know?" And I said, "I know." <laughs> and she said, "Are you on your own?" And I said, "No, um, my husband's out in the car. You're not allowed in." And she goes, "I think you should go and get him." She goes, "I'll come with you." And I said, okay. So I ran out, rang him. I was like, you need to come in. Like, I was like, what is, what are they going to say? Hadn't got a clue. Like, honest to God, I was really clueless. Like, so he came in, I was sitting there, met Dr. Alan Malloy, he pulled the, the screen up of the MRI. And he said, you, you can see here, this is where the cancer is and it's spreading. He said, it's starting to spread in your hand. Uh, there's a wing on the right, a right and a, a ring on the left. Can you see that there? It's starting to spread. He said, you know that this cancer is extremely aggressive and it's, this is going for your lungs. So he said, we need to get rid of this as soon as possible. And I said, yeah. And he goes, so do you know where we're going here? Me and Gavin looked at each other and we said, no. 
he said, you're going to have to have an amputation. And I said, what? And he said, yeah, you're going to have to have an amputation. He said, it's the only way that you're, we can guarantee that you can, you'll survive. So it was basically a matter of life and death. And I just remember thinking my whole, I just couldn't comprehend it. I was like, I can't, how on earth can I lose my hand? Like, how can they take my hand off? Like, I just, I was just shocked. Like, absolutely. Like to hear you have cancer, you're shocked. To hear then you have to have an amputation. It's just like, is this even, is this real? Is this a dream? What is going on in my life? Like, honest to God. And I was looking at Gavin. Gavin was like, is there nothing else you can do? Can you not just remove it out of hand? Like, he said, I tell you what, he said, this is the way it is. He said, if you have cancer and it's the size of a five cent, he said, in order to get clear margins, you need to take out the size of a two euro. And I said, so where are you going to be taking it from? And he's like, five centimeters below the wrist. And I was like, what? So Mary Cavanagh came over and showed me like where five centimeters was. And I just was like, oh my God, like how can this even be real? Like, this is shocking. Like I was just devastated and just, I was like, I can't even tell me friends. I was like, I'm actually, I can't even process this. And he's like, I'm really sorry. He was like, it's, you're a young girl. Like you shouldn't have to go through this. But he said, if you don't get rid of that and if we try and cut that out, he said, we're not guaranteed that the particles or the cancer is going to be in your fingers and that's still going to get to your lungs. He said, like the cells could be duplicating in, in other places. And he said, your hand would never be of use. And he said that if you kept your hand, it would be like, you know, kind of limp and kind of, you know, brought in like that. And he said, eventually it would get infected and you would have to get amputated. So I was just like, oh my God, like how am I going to, like even, even like that's your front house is your hands. You do everything with your hands. You do more with your hands than you even know you're doing with your hands. And if you were to lose a hand, you realize what you're missing. Well, people obviously, I never would have never even entered my head that my hands were so important to me. Like I just never would have, I would have just totally took them for granted. Um, so I left and I just rang my brother and I just was like, I, you won't, you just won't believe this. Like you just literally won't believe this. And I was like, I can't. And I said, look, I'm not telling anybody. I'm like, I knew everybody was waiting to hear how I got on. But I was like, I can't talk. So I said to Gav, will you just drive me to Krispy Kreme? Because I need sugar. <laughs> and we went and we got donuts. And then I was like, Gav, I was like, my hand, I'm going to lose my hand. Like, ow. Like, and we were just both f- floored and so emotional. Like, like it was just like, oh my God, how am I going to survive? Like, what way am I going to be? Like, you know, do you know, like, what? So I went back into Marlies then on the Monday. So that was on the Thursday. And Marlies said to me, Amy, we've all come to the conclusion we've had a meeting with the team and we think it's the best choice for you. It's the, the choice that will keep you alive. And I'm so unfortunate that it is, but it's the right decision. And I said to her, when, um, when can I, when is it going to happen? And she said this week and I nearly died. And I was like, what? 
And she said, yeah, because COVID, Amy, she's like, we don't get you in this week. Like we might not get you in, you know, this is so, uh, this is high priority now. So I was shocked. Like, and I was like, well, I'm going to have to meet my friends. I'm going to have to meet them for dinner. I'm going to have to tell them everything. So I rang on my friends. I was like, can you meet me at um, the Chinese up at Newlands Cross at six o'clock? And they were like, yep. Yeah. I got a phone call and she said, you have to come into the hospital tomorrow. Your bed is ready tomorrow and you're going to operate on the 18th of March. So Paddy's day, I went into the hospital and on the 18th of March, I was going in for the, or like it was going to be operation. What did you tell your friends? So I thought, I'm sure they were probably talking about saying I'm pregnant or something or whatever. I don't know what they thought, but it was a real weird thing to, it was, it was a shocking thing. They never would have thought it. I didn't think it. So they were not going to think it. So they got there anyway. And I just said, look, I said, I went over to Cap on Thursday and I told them just what I've told you there about the scan and what Dr. Alan Malloy had told me. And then I just told them that I'm going to have to have my hand amputated. And they were just shocked and very upset, very emotional and just couldn't believe it. Like just shocked. Yeah. Really shocked. So, um, I, we went to, we drove to, before I we went to see them, we drove over to Penny's and my brother ran into Penny's and got me pajamas and stuff like that for the hospital. Um, and I was just nervous. And I had said to Marlies, is there anybody else that you know that this happened to? Like, I need to talk to them. Mm. I need to talk to someone. And she said, yeah, there's a guy called Paul who lives in Clondalkin actually. Um, and he, I'll give you his number. I'll get his number for you. So he gave her the hospital my number and was so nice when I rang him the day before my operation. He had the same, he had sarcoma in his right dominant hand. Um, and he had to have his right dominant hand amputated too. Which is so bizarre. Like it's just so bizarre. But he, he, I just needed to speak to someone that had been through it and that they were all right. So he was giving me all the good, you know, mm-hmm. you know, that it's so important that you get it because Amy, if you don't get it, you're going to die. And you know, you get really sick and all the rest. And, you know, he was really supportive and I was so grateful for that phone call. Um, and he was real, you know, I felt like I had someone behind me, mm-hmm. someone that now is going to know what I'm going to go through. Do you know what I mean? Like he, he's been there, he's walked the shoes and I have somebody then to call when it's over. Mm-hmm. So it gave me a little bit of comfort. Um, my friend came down to help me get everything ready for the hospital and she blow dried my hair and everything for me. And we just, she's a, she's a real mammy friend, like, and, uh, she always looks after me and, um, she drove me to the hospital and we were to meet Gavin at the hospital. Gavin was working and Gavin, Mike, the job that I work for, I had put Gavin up in the Hilton Hotel Camino for two nights while I was in the hospital. And me and Gavin got to the front door and they wouldn't let him in. They wouldn't let me in. And this was probably one of the most horrific parts of this story is that I couldn't understand. I, I, I said, like, I'm, I need, he needs to come in with me. I'm, my hand is getting taken. Like, I need him. 
like, no, it's COVID. He's not allowed in. And I remember like, just like, being like, I can't go through with this. Like, how can you do this to me? Like, how can this story get worse? Like, I am petrified. I have to go in and have my hand removed and my husband can't be with me. And I remember bawling, crying, like, I mean, sobbing. And I said, walked over to the wall and I had my suitcase with me. And I was like, oh, I can't go through. I can't go through. I just can't do it. Like, how can I do it without you? Like, and he, do you want a cup of tea? Yeah. <laughs> so you're in, you go into hospital and Gavin's allowed to come in with you then? No? No, I go into James's and Gavin's allowed into the reception. Okay. But he's not allowed to come into the room or into the ward with me. He's, he's the go then. So, um, I'm in bits at the wall, um, crying, thinking I can't go through here. Like, how can I go through here? Like to get my hand amputated and you can't be there. Like how unfair is it? I've, I, I'm on my own. I'm really on my own. Like, and this is so scary. So anyway, I just calmed down a bit and I just said, right, go, just go in. Um, so I went in um, to St. John's Ward and I was petrified like and they were only allowing people that were dying in to the like say if your ma was dying you were allowed to come in and visit mm. it's just for the dying that's who were allowed in so they were allowing people so there was a woman in with her mother in front of me because her mother was dying and anyway, then the guy came around that evening and he marked on my arm where I was going to be amputated. And that was really weird. It was a pen mark with an arrow. The next morning I was petrified, like absolutely petrified. And I was crying like, and I got onto the trolley to be wheeled down. And this woman that was wheeling me down, she said to me, what are you getting done? And I was just like, oh, and I was like, I have to have my hand amputated. I have cancer in my hand. and. She started bawling and I was just like, yeah, I was just petrified being wheeled down to this theater and I was just parked off. Like you're just sitting there like, and you're just like, when I wake up, my hand's gone. Like it was just madness. Like, and you just parked up, I just parked up, parked there for about 10 or 15 minutes that you have to sit there bawling your eyes out and you've got nobody with you. Like, I know when everyone gets to that area, then there is nobody. But like, if we're getting something like what I'm getting done, like you should really have somebody beside you, kind of minding you. You need, you need that, you know? And then I went in and they had trouble getting the needle into my hand. And then all of a sudden I just remembered the, the gas going on my face. And I woke up then and... In the moment of the gas being put on your face, what's that like? I was like... <gasps> like, I was just fucking... Sorry, I was just traumatised in that moment. Like, I actually felt like... Oh God, like, I, it's just... It was a very heavy moment. And the, they were shouting and all because the needle wouldn't go in my hand and they were hurting my hand, my other hand. And there's a big plastic thing that goes over you and you're just like, I'm... I just, I just felt like I was kind of suffocating for a second. Do you know, it was, it was full on, full on. Um, and then I woke up, like, I actually love waking up from an anesthetic. <laughs> I actually 
actually love it. I just love the feeling. Mm. And I love when I wake up and everything is magical. Mm. Like it's just amazing. Like, mm. and life is so wonderful. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how I woke up. I looked down and my arm, my hand was obviously gone. There was a big, huge bubble bandage at the end of my arm. And life was amazing still because I was on this medication and they wouldn't let me out because my heart was higher than it should have been. So I had to drink water and I remember different nurses were coming over and they were saying, what happened to you? And they were real intrigued about me, like, you know, and I remember saying, can I see my husband now? Like, and they were saying, yeah, yeah. So I was all geared up and excited and, you know, finally came through, was allowed to leave. They put me in a wheelchair. I was high as high on life. And when I got to the room, I was like, where's my husband? And they're like, no, you can't see him. And I was like, what? It's like, why did you tell me that? Yeah. Like that's like, they obviously told me to keep me calm. Yeah. Like, but it was just terrible to tell me that as well. And then get there and you're not allowed. And I said to him, well, I tell you what I said, I need a wheelchair. I need to get down to the front door. You're going to need to let me go down to the front door because I need to see him because I haven't seen him. And I need him to see me to make sure that he's all right and that we're all right. So they said, we'll have a wheelchair for you at eight o'clock. So I was able to arrange to get down to the front door. Mm. But obviously I was on morphine and, you know, you can just press the pump Mm. every 15 minutes or whatever. And I was sitting in my bed and there was this woman and the second, not facing me, it was the second one to me, but she could see me through my court. And like, I, I'd be a kind of a private person in a way that I wouldn't care to go out and interact with. Mm. It was just off my head anyway. And I was mm. just, you know, in my own little world. And I could see her through the court and the girl, the woman beside her, she was another older woman and she was giving out to her. And the girl that I could see looked at me and kind of rolled her eyes and I rolled my eyes and said, ah, you know, mm-hmm. you're one. There was two other women in the ward. And I remember feeling as much as what I had gone through, I actually felt lucky. And I know that sounds so odd because what I went through was horrific. So that was my, my first evening back. And then I got a lift down to meet Gavin at the front door and I got the same for 10 minutes. And like, what was that like? It was very emotional. When I look back at it now, God, like I actually feel so sorry for him because I can only imagine how he felt to see me after like it's it's the brutality of having your hands amputated like the it's not just like that it's gone it's it's just like it's severe like to to have something like that so for a man and I noticed that a lot of men were really really deeply affected by it more so than women um and it was great to see him I was still on my meds I was grand because I was on my meds, but I imagined for him it was horrific. Like, I think I'd say he cried a lot on his own. Um, Have you ever had a conversation about it? Yeah, like actually just recently. And I think he said that he did cry on his own because he was on his own in the hotel and he had like, you know. God. Yeah, it must have been horrible for him. Like, can you imagine your, like if, if I was to step outside my own body now, and to look at the picture of what was actually happening, like I would be like, that husband is like idolizes his wife, does everything like, and he has to go through the pain of knowing what she has to go through. You know, that way, when you look at it in that picture, like that's a real, 
wow. Sometimes I think that, that this even happened to me. Mm. Do you know? It's like, wow. It's a, if you step outside yourself and you look at what's actually going on, it's, it's a lot bigger than what, if you're in it sometimes you don't see it. Mm-hmm. Could you imagine him going back to the hotel room on his own? Just wanting to be with me and to mind me. Terrified. Terrified. Yeah, definitely. Um, and the next day I was only in hospital for two days because of COVID. The next, yeah, the next day I had to get a PET scan done to make sure that it was, it wasn't in any, anywhere else. And I went down and when I came back up, everybody in my ward was gone. All the beds were moved. Everybody was, the, the nurses were sweeping, they were cleaning. And I was like, what is going on? And it was rush, rush, rush. And I said, like, what's happening? And they said, oh, this ward is going to be turned into a COVID ward. And I was like, right, get me out here. And this nurse came over to me and she said, here, a piece of paper, Lily's number. This is an 80, this is me 85 year old friend. (laughs) So I rang her when I got home. Actually, sorry, before I got home, I had to go to the chemist and get me medication. Bearing in mind, I was told nothing about my medication at all. I was just saying, this is what you're on, Oxycontin, Oxynorms. Um, and then uh, the nerve tablets. And I went to the chemist and while I was waiting, the guy who did my ultrasound walked up to the chemist. The guy who said it was benign. And I was like, oh my God, I'm actually faced with the man who told me that it wasn't cancer. And I just was really angry. I wanted to say something to him, but I didn't because there's re- everyone has, every, everybody, everybody in, the, in life can make mistakes. I know that that was a different, and can you imagine I didn't go for the MRI? Because he told me not, because he told me that it wasn't, you know. Um, but Did he recognise you? He looked at me, but I don't know. I don't know. He did look at me and I I just kind of looked and I thought, this is madness. But I'm faced with him before I leave. So I didn't say anything to him anyway and I left. And when I got home, then I rang Lily and she said that she was really upset and all that they moved her to this other ward and she was just petrified and all that. And I felt terrible for her. So I said I'd ring her again during the week. And when I tried to ring her, she, it was gone. And I thought, Jesus, something happened to her, you know. And actually only about two months ago, she rang me out of blue. Like it was <laughs> random. So we were catching up from what happened after I left. But she was a lovely woman and she's part of the story, you know. Um. So, yeah. So then after that, then it was life. It was the recovery side. And like at this stage, like I didn't know what I was going to be able to do. Like I, I had like at this stage, I mean, I Gab had to help me get washed, dressed. Obviously, like I could eat with my hand, but like obviously just all the different things that like, because I was in and out. I, geez, I just thought my hand was just taken off. I had to, was in an awful lot of pain. And so my big thing would be, stay in the hospital longer because they can clean, they can dress it. I would have massive fear leaving the hospital. That would be my fear. How you did that? I'll tell you about that now because the day I I was due back in on the 31st of March for the first viewing of my wound. And that was my birthday. And the day before... 
I went back, my bandage fell off. <laughs> oh God, I- and I was I was like, oh my God. Like I looked down and I was like, oh my God, Gav. And he came in and I was like, this is after falling off. And we were just like, what? And I was just like, oh my God. Like I was kind of shocked. Like I was kind of shocked. I'm not going to lie. Um, but when I look back and even the next day when it was my birthday, I was actually glad because I got to experience that in my own private space in my home and it was it wasn't a shock in front of other people that were going to be looking and I wasn't going to so I was a little bit prepared more than anything that I didn't and I knew that then on the day I was like actually I've seen it I'm not going to be shocked because I've seen it I was on the day don't get me wrong I was a bit like I can't believe this was after happening do you know and did you did he have to put it back on did you put it back on did yeah. you see it did you look at it did I you? looked at it yeah I picked it back up I picked the, the bandage up because it was hanging off because my arm had, was obviously swollen yeah. and it was ballooned up and then it shrinks then. Okay. So the, that bandage was flapping off anyway and I was just kind of holding on. Like it was like a big kind of, it was like a balloon kind of a bandage if you know what I mean, the way that it's, it's over that way. And I just, yeah, I was just like, OMG. Um, but then when I went into the hospital and I... Hang on. <laughs> hang on you're just like you're like omg like it's your like, i know you're so flippant like yeah well it's come to, i've gotten to this i've gotten this to this like i'm flippant now because i've gone through it i'm past it I'm, i've gone I've, i'm out the other side of that of that you know um and i did i had to i had to i had to develop a love Mm. for my uh, first of all I had to grieve that the, when I looked down my hand was gone that was very emotional every time I woke up three times in the middle of the night in pain new meds and every time I woke up I'd have to go to the toilet and I was reminded that my arm my hand sorry was gone and that was really difficult to comprehend do you forget did you did you forget sometimes that it was gone yeah Oh, of course, because you're on so many medications, then you're going to sleep and then you're waking up and it's, it's pain in you. So you're waking up and you're like, right, Lou, um, medic, new, more medication. So every time you have to take your meds, you're reminded because you're in the pain. So you can't get away from it because the pain. Mm. So I grieved my hand for ages. I cried. I had to get a lot of acceptance and a lot of love for my arm that I didn't have at the, at the time because it was new and it looked very different to me and it was healing and it was, you know, there was a big scar at the front of it and it was very delicate and it was almost like a newborn baby. And I had to love this newborn baby and I needed to like accept the newborn baby and love the newborn baby and nurture it and mind it. So that's what was going on for me. Mm-hmm. And my, you know, I was really like, with, you know, what does Gavin think? And, you know, I was in that mm-hmm. headspace for a while. And um, I think at the time, if I look back on time, Gavin was quite angry as well. Gavin isn't an angry person and he doesn't express his anger really. You never really see him angry. Mm-hmm. Um, he's very, uh, well, he he's a case of raw kind of a person and he just, he deals with 
anything that's negative in a really different way than anyone, which is great. But I could see that he was kind of angry. There was a little bit of, there was also a bit of like in relation to the medication. So Joe was like getting me off that now to Gavin. And I was like, I'm not coming off that now. The hospital gave me that medication and I'm taking that medication. Mm -hmm. And if the hospital say I'm taking it. So my brother Craig and Gavin and me kind of had a little altercation and I was like, you're making me feel like I'm fuck. Sorry. You are making me feel like I am mad that I'm doing something wrong. I've literally just lost my hand and you guys are telling me not to take me medication. What? What's this about? Like the intervention they were trying to have. Yeah, kind of. And this was at the very beginning. So I was just like, leave me, really leave me. Like, guys, Mm. I am struggling here. Like, so I understand everything now. So the medication that I was on is highly addictive. It's basically hillbilly heroin Mm. and it's a big epidemic over in the Mm -hmm. the USA. And there's a documentary on Netflix about it as well. Mm I always said, I'll never be addicted to it because I'm not, I hate taking tablets anyway. And I hate the fact that I have to take time and I'm, I'm restricted around time and everything like that. And I, I'm fed up taking tablets, but I felt like I need them at the moment. Now, when I look back at the dosages, I was on a lot, like absolutely ridiculous amount. It was unnecessary, but again, I didn't know at the time. But I always said, I'm never going to be addicted. I'm not going to be addicted. And it got down to, then I was getting my prescriptions in the hospital and the hospital, the chemist was being funny with, my own chemist was being funny with me then. And is there nobody managing her pain, managing her her meds? So they were, were being reluctant towards giving me the medication. Some of the guys, sorry, I was using the hospital to give me a prescription. Um, and then they, they started to stop. And I started to feel then like there was something wrong with me and that I was an addict. Like that I felt like that they were treating me as if I was an addict, mm. which was really sad. And it was so upset. And I was actually so hurt that it was turning into this where I had no, no education on the drug before I left the hospital or there was no plan. Yeah. No one sat no down, sat down and said, said, this is how long you're going to take this for and this is how long you're going to take this for. So I just started to reduce myself and um, we got through it and I linked in with my own doctor and there was a little bit of hassle at the start of that. But then I went, I, I was like, do you know what? I felt like saying F yous, I'll do this and I'll, I'll show you mm. that I'm not addicted to these and you can all cop mm. on. Like, so that was going on as well. So that's part of the story that other people never would know and nobody would have understand. And that's why I say to you about social media, I stepped back from social media. I had loads of stuff going on in my life that I was trying to come to terms with that nobody else could see or know. So that was all going on. Um, so I eventually said, right, I'm coming off everything. And I came off everything too fast. And I rang my doctor and I was in loads of pain and all. And he said to me, no, he said, you need to go back up. So I went back up and I came back down and I eventually got onto the liquid form of Oxynorm and I was down to like five mil and whatever. And I went into my doctor and I was like, I'm, I'm off. I'm finished. He said, what? He said, I didn't think you would be. And I said, no, I said, I'm, I told you, I, I genuinely was not addicted to that. I just, 
thought that I needed it because of what happened. You were told, I was you told needed. that I needed it. Yeah. yeah. And he put this big, huge smile on his face and he said, I am so proud of you because he didn't think I'd make, he really thought I was going, he really believed that I was addicted to it. And I actually genuinely in oh, hand on my heart feel that I wasn't addicted to it. I did feel like I needed it, but I didn't feel like I was going to rely on it for the rest of my life or anything like it. Mm-hmm. So in August, I was, I gave that up and Gav got me, he had said to me, cause we were talking about getting a dog for years. And it was, he was like, if you give up your medication, we, we're, we'll get our dog. So I was like, right. So we got our dog then. And um, isn't it mad the what you said about the, the oxy? I wonder how many people during COVID were just given, like, as that chemist said, who was managing your pain? Like, who was actually managing that? Nobody. And if you had gone the other way, that would have been as a result of what's the word? Negligence. Negligence. Yeah. And, that, and I do, because I watch that Netflix program. It's very scary. I could have been. Like, there is, there's addiction in my family and it runs deep. Mm. And I easily could have been, le- like, pulled that way. And especially with what happened to me. Mm-hmm. Because what happened to me, I was told before that some people are so depressed and down over what happened to them that they probably don't get out of bed for a long time Mm. I didn't I jumped up and was like no I am still living I'm still alive and I'm not going to I've been given the opportunity and the chance to live why why would I why would I hide I'm not hiding there's no way I'm hiding like absolutely not too much to live for and I'm not going to so we had like obviously they were harder times um, throughout everything. And then of course, like I wasn't sure what way I'd be, would I be able to get dressed and all the rest. So Gabby used to have to wash and dry me hair. Um, I, he'd help me get dressed and stuff like that for balance. And then he said, Amy, just one day you just started doing it yourself. Like you just amazed me. Like you're just like, and I was like, that's obvious because my hand or my arm was healed and it wasn't that, it wasn't as sore. Mm. And I just started to just do everything then myself. Is it a balanced thing? Because I know with feet and toes, well, it's a balanced thing. When it? I'm when I'm putting on a pair of socks, I have to balance mm-hmm. on one le- on one leg. Okay. Because I have to balance on this leg, put my foot up, and then I have to pull the sock around and then re pull it up around. Okay. With one leg, so I am balancing when I'm putting socks on. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Um, and I just started doing all of that myself. I started having like you know, obviously have showers and all that and. You know, I, 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 I excelled more than I thought I was going to. Like at one stage we thought, Jesus, is this it? Like, you know, we didn't know. We've never been through it before. Did so. you have physio? No, I had no physio. What? I had nothing. No, nothing. So there was definitely no. There, there was really, no support. There was no support. I no had aftercare. No, no aftercare. My consultant never rang me. Um, and it was week five and I was devastated. It was my ma's birthday and I was I was, I actually went on social media and I cried this day and it was the only time I ever did that. But I was absolutely just so in, on the floor. And I was so, I, I felt like, how could she not ring me? Why did she not ring me? Um, I need, I need, uh, I need her. And I need like, um, 
a female figure to like to support me. Like, yeah. you know, I was I was left I was left to go home. It was COVID. Nobody could visit me. I was on my own, like throughout the the pandemic, trying to deal with like just after losing my hand, being told I had cancer, like, you know, with no support. Did they not offer you counselling? Did they not do any of that? They did. Um that came like eight weeks later. Um I I did, I rang my consultant and I said to her, like, I'm really disappointed that you didn't ring me, that I had to ring you. I told her. Mm. She called me in then to the clinic and she apologised. And she said that just like obviously with COVID and everything that she just didn't think. And she, like that she was very sorry. I think a lot of things was blamed on, that should never yeah. been blamed on COVID. No, I know. Blamed on COVID. I know. Now, in fairness, like, she does fought my follow-ups and she's, she's really nice. Like, but I, I had to tell her that, you know, that she hurt me kind of mm. in a way. And once I did that, like it was fine, you know, I think she probably respects me for doing it, to be honest. I just can't believe there's no physio. Like I can't believe no physio. Um, the only thing that I had was I got the HSC did give me a cosmetic prosthetic, yeah. which is what I have on at the moment, which I, I don't like it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do put it in my pocket and I, I just find it really difficult. So that's the other, another thing that goes on that nobody would, would really know. Like I do, I find that part difficult. Like I find like I'm much freer without it on. Like I love being at home. I don't, I take it off and I'm, you know, I'm comfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I go out or for my clothes to fit, like I do like to put it on, but again, I don't really like to take it out in front of people. Um, because to me, when I look at it, it's like a doll's hand. It's not, it doesn't, it it doesn't kind of, it's imitating something that it's not. And I, I struggle with that. Like I actually do struggle with that part and with this prosthetic and I can't wait to get the bionic because the bionic is different. Like the bionic is the Louis Vuitton arm of arms and I'm going to own it like, and I'm going to be different and it is going to look different. It's going to be robotic. It's, it's futuristic. I can accept that because I know that it's not a hand. Mm. So mentally for me, I will mentally accept that more than I accept the cosmetic. The cosmetic one doesn't do anything. It doesn't move. It's just literally just there. Um, so tell me about the bionic and how did that come about? So we spoke about it. My friends all got together and said, like, we're thinking of setting up a GoFundMe page for you. Um, did you speak to your consultant about it? No, not my consultant. I actually found out about this through Paul, the guy who also lost his hand. Yeah. So he guided me on this and he was taught, he taught me all about it. Um, and that's where I got a, a notion in my head that this it would be amazing for me. It's got eight different grip patterns so I can get my grip back because I only have one grip. Um, okay. I'll be able to like lift up the cup, yeah. put it up to my mouth, close it. I'll be able to open and close the hand. I'll be able to have an index finger like that. Um there's a f- good few different di- different uh, patterns on it that I need to I need to train with it. Like, mm-hmm. um, so this will give me back a much better quality of life to have this. Um, so my friends and my brother Craig were like, "Well, we're going to set up 
yeah, and Amy's army, Amy's army, and <laughs> um, and I was like, okay, that's okay, but and then I got so far on social media and whatever, and then it was just kind of quiet, like, and we, my my job actually were absolutely fantastic. Like they are just amazing. Crystal Air Limited, amazing. They're just like, they were like a family to me. Like I wouldn't have excelled. I don't feel I would have excelled as far as I have if it wasn't for them. Because the job part for me was the most important part because I was thinking, why don't I have my job? Like, what am I going to do? And, la, 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 la. and I was like, I, I can still work. I know I can. I was like, I'm going to show them that I can still do my job with one hand. And by God, I showed them. And like, that's how determined I was. Mm. Like, if I can still do what I was doing, like, there's no productivity lost. Yeah. Like it was a no brainer. And I, they just supported me like while I was off. And I mean, at the time, had I have not had an amputation and I was going down the chemo route, like we're setting you up a taxi account. You're not to drive from your house to the hospital. Wow. You are not under no circumstances to be in, in traffic and worrying about parking and all that. Like that is all covered. Whatever you need, we are here for you. Jesus Christ. And they are still there for me and still here for me. And they're just amazing. It's few and far between. Yeah. And out of the other side of the fundraising, which I haven't put on social media, um, I will when I get my bionic arm. But my, the the two owners of my company, um, Dominic and Dave, well, Dominic is a, plays golf for the K Club. Okay. And <clears throat> the K Club have been unbelievable to me. Like we were supposed to have this big um ball mm. or evening. But COVID obviously kept, you know, mm-hmm. we uh, we kept going into lockdown. So we kept to keep keep pushing the dates out. And then it was just like, do you know what, Amy? We're gonna do a virtual event. And Michael Federson, the owner of the K Club, like absolutely so nice like he was like I'll just give you the money and when you get the money you can just pay me back like that's the type of person that he is you know and I was like no 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 we'll wait until we get the the, the funds come in and whatever so they did a virtual event and Brian Ormond also was on their team and Mm -hmm. he and Dominic and Mirren in the office and all really drove that side of the fundraising for me um and then I was able to get my arm. So with the GoFundMe page and the virtual event that the company and the K Club and Brian did that I was of a source. I was made. Brian's so good for those things, he's, isn't he? He's amazing. He's mm. so good. Yeah, he's really, really good. And he just he knows how to get things done. You know? Yeah, like he's he's amazing. So good, and I'll be forever grateful to them for doing that for me. You know, um, how so much does the hand cost, and where does the hand come from, Amy? So the hand is um, seventy five thousand euro. Wow. Um, it comes from the UK, but could also have gotten it in Germany or probably anywhere in Europe. To be honest with you, but 
there's a link between the UK and Kappa, okay. the orthopedic over here. So we're able to link in with my consultant in Kappa. <clears throat> get, sorry, get fittings and stuff here. Kappa. And then they send it over there Brilliant. and it gets built and made over there. There was a lot of donations. I was on the Ireland AM and like a lot of donations, sorry, came in through that and really people rallied around and really supported me and like I'm I'll always be grateful for that and that's what I said to you like I tagged everybody I made sure and I still have them all in a little folder kind of at the end and I'll never forget like the support that I got you know um and it's incredible what like community spirit does and how everybody pulls together and tell me when is the big day so the big day is in about two to three weeks time. Okay. So yeah, I'll have it then. And I actually, to be honest with you, I want to get like a good photograph with it. So my cousin's wife, Alicia, is a photographer. Right. Um, Alicia Clark Photography. <laughs> she, um, I said to her, look, I'm going to get you to take a good picture of us when I, when I get it. And we'll, you know, we'll put it up and whatever and it'll be nice and all. So. I'm going to like make it special, like, you know. And you're going to have the procedure. Is it a procedure? No, it's not a procedure. See, there's different types. So there's an, uh, there is a bionic arm that you can get and you can get like a chip put in the back of your neck, but it's very invasive. And I'm not into that because like, what if something goes wrong? So this, what this one does is I put my arm into, uh, into the arm. Okay. Of the, the bionic. And there's these, um, electrolytes mm-hmm. from the Mayo cup and they are placed in the arm in the shell of the arm okay because like I still have a lot of my arm yeah. so my arm will slide in to this shell kind of the cover of it and the electrolytes will touch point my own arm and out of my own arm when I move my arm that way and that way and this way and that way and whatever because I have to do loads of I'll activate that to open just through my own actual arm censoring off the sensors that are built in. We plugged this, we, we've plugged my, plugged the sensors onto my arm and I've done it. I had to put it on. It's like a, an iPad that has like a, you know, like a, a spider's web. And anytime I move my hand one way, it will cover the web. So that kind of, that's the sensor as to, what I can pick up and what way I can work it. So it's mad. So tech, it's technology today is unreal. Amazing. So it's actually going to just be through my own arm and the touch of my own arm that I can make this open and close and, you know, grab things. and Because mm, everything is like... Everything. I still, have, ten, yeah. I still have all my muscle sensors because yeah. they isolated them off in the operation. So I still have them and that's what's going to... Yeah. To act, like that's what I'll be using it. Now it'll probably be a bit heavier than... The prosthetic that I have, well, I'll get used to it. Do you know what I mean? Um, and I'll be able to drive like properly. How do you um, drive now? At the moment, I have a spinner okay. on the wheel, you know, like the truck drivers. Mm-hmm. And if I'm turning the corner, if I'm going right or left, I'll use that mm-hmm. because it's access two hands. Um, so that's what I'm using at the moment. So it's a little kind of a ball that sits on your wheel. Um, but again, when I have the bionic, I'll be able to feed the wheel around and I've Probably won't really need it, like, you know. Um, Are you so, excited? Yeah, no, I'm really excited. It's going to be great. Like, it's going to be a brand new chapter. As I said, like, um, I'll be, be the bionic lady. Mm-hmm. 
But again, it is, it's more kind of like, what's the word like? I can't think of the word, but you know, when somebody's like, you can't, you're not hiding the fact. Yeah. Like when, when I have this on, like I might, I'll stick that in my pocket part half the time, like, well, the majority of the time, nobody knows us. Mm. Nobody mm. will know. I'll know. And I still have to come to, come to terms with that. Like, I find that that's still something that I'm working on at the moment. Um, and I find that that's probably an emotional part of the journey that I'm in still in. Like an example, I went into Marks and Spencer's one day and I had like a tote bag and I know that I can pack a tote bag. Mm. But when I walked in, the guy handed me a, a basket straight away and I was like oh my god how am I gonna like what am I gonna do and I didn't think of just putting the basket down but yeah. I I started packing it and you know when you're in Mark Spencer's and you just want everything yeah so the basket was getting heavier and I was thinking I started to sweat and I was like oh my god I think I'm just gonna leave here now like I'm actually just gonna run I can't do this mm. and they're like no Amy don't run stay with it face it stay with it mm. and I had the basket over me prosthetic arm but I had my prosthetic arm kind of covered with me my jacket mm-hmm. and I was panicking people were, if he, anyone was staring at me I was like they know like you know and I was just like I was all caught up in my head and all and it wasn't there was just two fellas like probably just looking at me like yeah. but I, I don't see that I see yeah. that um, they're, they know like and you know and I'm all fucked up about it like but anyway I was like right so then I'm on this mission right so what till am I going to write I need to get to the end till the end till there's no pressure on me there's nobody going to be behind me so I have all this calculated. This is how I've calculated my time in the center, in the shops. Like it's mental, like how I've calculated all these things. So I get to the, the end tail. There's nobody on the one in front of that. And there's nobody going to come behind me. So I'm like, right. Shops are a bit quieter. It's grand. I'm a little bit cooler. So I get up to the tail and I start to unpack it with my hand. And mm. the lady goes to me, do you want a bag? And I said, yeah, I'll get, I have one bag, but I might need another one. And then I was like, what did I say that for? Because now I'm going to have to take that arm out. And I, I can't like, I'm like, I can't, I'm not ready yet. I'm really not ready. And I just said, I just leaned in and I said to her, um, I actually have a prosthetic hand and would you be able to help me pack that bag? And she said, absolutely. She said, don't ever be afraid to ask for help. She said, like, you're a customer and we're here for you. And she said, do you want me to get someone to bring out your car? And I said, no, no. I said, I can do that. I said, and I can actually pack a bag, but I'm just nervous because you're here and I don't know you. And I'm, I'm a bit kind of overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. And I said, it just happened to me this year and I'm really trying to come to terms with it. And I just said like, you know, I'm just a bit nervous. Like, no, she said, don't ever be, don't ever feel that way. And I'll, so I got my bags and everything and I lifted them up and I left and I cried my eyes out in the car park because and I, I felt like it's not even because I couldn't do it because I could if I really wanted to do it, but it's because I asked for help. All right. And it was the first time I ever asked for help in this situation, other than, you know, being at home or anything like that, but mm-hmm. in a public setting. And it was the first time I voiced it to somebody, a stranger, that I have a prosthetic hand. Do you know what I mean? And that was huge for me and it's such a big deal. Big deal. A big, big deal. And I just it's 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 part of me healing and it's part of yeah I know <laughs> a few tears yeah just let it out <sighs> sitting here in front of me you're like <laughs> I, I you're like I'm still coming you're coming to terms with it like you're 
superwoman, you're ionic woman, you're superwoman now, Amy. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I know. Like it's, it is, it's a, it's a very, a very sad kind of but situation and what happened and all. But like, I just, like, I just feel that like, I'm going to get through it and I'm going to show people that you can get through and you can get through difficult times in your life even when you don't think that you can you know and that's that's my kind of I think that's my life for going forward in, in the world and I actually believe that it was actually assigned to me now that I was actually assigned this and I all oh, Gav said to me I always knew you were different <laughs> and I said to him it's mad because I always felt different even as a child and I just feel that I have a resilience as well and I just think that like I'm going to show you like that's the way I feel like I was assigned this task for a reason whoever somebody needs me somebody needs me to show them and that's the way it is mm-hmm. you know and and I'll be there if someone else goes behind me on this journey that I'm there you know like the way Paul was there for me I'll be there for someone else three weeks time it arrives here in Kappa. You don't need to go to the UK, do you? No, no, I don't need to go to the UK. It arrives here. I'll go out and I'll probably have a bit of training. And yeah, I'll probably have to do exercises and stuff at home. Do you know what's nuts that you had to do that on your own? That you had to go and find that? Yeah. Yeah. Amy, what does the future hold for you? Um, the future holds for me um, lots of wonderful things and not, 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 um, not dim in my life. Uh, shining my light on myself and just keep going and uh, lots of different prospects that are going to come to me that I'm going to manifest <laughs> that I've already manifested some of them this year like oh my god so many of them have come true um, and I'm just going to continue doing it like and I feel like the future is bright and by the time this podcast probably goes out, you're probably going to be getting your, yeah. your your arm done. Will you come back and talk to me about that? Yeah, I will. I'll definitely come back and talk to you and show you about it. Yeah. And on that note, Amy, we leave it there. Amy, thank you so much for sitting down with me. Best of luck. Thank you very much. Hi, everyone. Rebecca here. I hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. As you know, your feedback is invaluable. If you have the time, please leave us a review across your favorite podcast platform. See you next week. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlingbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.